This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Well, I'm hoping that this episode is going to be an easy one uh, because I am going to be speaking with a good friend of mine. His name is PJ, and he is from uh, Sydney, Australia. He's been on the podcast before. Uh, He's actually been out here to Kansas City, Missouri, and has visited with me and my wife and our friend Doris. And that's been a while. It's hard to believe it's been as long as it's been and how, how much the world has changed since we last saw each other in person. So uh, this is a good opportunity for us to catch up to see how things are going. Um, you last shared your story with us. I guess it was four years ago, you said, here? Yes, that's right, John. Well, PJ, why don't you start um, a little bit by kind of, uh, you know, every time we tell our story, even though it's the same story, it's always a little bit different every time we tell it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. Um, my name is PJ, and I'm an alcoholic. And I want to say, I know you live in Kansas, Missouri. <laughs> I know. I shouldn't be so sensitive about that. I wouldn't, I shouldn't expect somebody from the other side of the world to know the difference between Missouri and Kansas when I don't even know what's going on over there. That's my, my warning to anyone visiting John. Make sure you know what side of the state line you're on. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So my name is PJ and I am an alcoholic and it's the first drink that does the damage. And if I don't pick up the first drink, I can't get drunk. And I come to meetings of AA and participate in ones that suit me. And I try and help others to get sober and stay sober. So I have a simple three uh, things that I do for sobriety. I don't pick up the first drink no matter what happens. Uh, I participate in meetings of AA because I can't stay sober on my own. I need help. And I found that if you get involved in service and try and help others uh, to get and stay sober, that just List your sobriety. Uh, and that's like the top of a pyramid, those three actions. Uh, because underneath all that then is a whole pile of experience. So I would like to just share my story to go back a little bit and take it up to where we were four years ago. Um, I picked up a drink at 19. I'm Irish, by the way. I was born in Ireland. We never would have guessed. My- never would have guessed. <laughs> Sorry. not an Australian accent. <laughs> if you think it's an Australian accent, just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, yeah, and a lot of my thing was before I got near a drink, I was very anxious as a kid and very uh, nervous uh, to the point that I would throw up all over a girl if I'd even tried to talk to her. I was just that nervous. Uh, and then when I picked up a drink, um, it just changed all that. And I relaxed. And I also felt that compulsion to have more, that I've always felt that. In Sydney, I'm what they would call you a primary alcoholic. That doesn't mean you're better than anybody else. It just means there was no settling in period. I, I didn't drink socially and then like move into alcoholism. I, I drank like that all the time. Like, so think in terms of a vacuum cleaner. That was me. You know, I just, I just soaked it up. And that night, I got incredibly drunk. I threw up all over the bed. And I had my first hangover, which they're horrendous. And if I'd ever... Um, eating a ham sandwich that made me that sick, I would never eat ham again. You know, you'd be out of your mind to consume something that is that poisonous to you. And of course, I did I did it repeatedly because uh, it was too good. Uh, and of course, I did get tolerance and I did settle down. So I had a lot of fun 
you know, I drank for 14 years. I had eight really good years. Then the drink driving comes, the blackout comes, relationships, all of that. And I thought, well, we'll move to Australia. So six weeks after we were married, my first wife, we came to Australia. The Great White Hope landed in Sydney and uh, brought his alcoholism with him. And I, I you know, uh, repeated the problems all over again. And she was somebody that uh, wasn't going to put up with it, drew a line in the sand. I crossed that line and she left. And I thought, well, you know, she's out of the way. Uh, now I can do what I like. Because I was always trying to restrain myself around her. But she said things like, why can't you have two drinks like everyone else? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know why. Uh, and of course, I would say, well, I'll only let her see me have two drinks. So I'm being a really good husband by being sneaky. I mean, this is the way you twist it around, you know. Uh, so she was out of the picture. I thought I could drink as I please. Uh, and no, uh, my, my tolerance went out the window. Uh, I, I began to drink alone on my own at home. And it was just me and the booze. That was, that was it. I, would, I worked. I came home. I drank. I worked, I came home, I drank. And one night it stopped working. And there's a line in the big book that says, I think it's paraphrasing, we can either live with alcohol or without it. You know, there's this moment. And I just thought, you're the problem, grog, alcohol. I can't do this anymore. I threw out half a case of beer. Uh, and, you know, the way I look at it, I, I didn't do the first step with a sponsor and I didn't do it with God. I did it with King Alcohol. So me and him like got into a boxing ring for 14 years and I had the upper hand for about eight. And then as time went on, you know, I, I got beaten. And in the end, I just said, I can't do it. And through a set of circumstances, I wound up in a, and I had the third tradition. Now I know not really realizing what the third tradition was. So I, I wanted to stop. I'd been 13 days in the calendar, uh, a psychologist, Instead of listening to, to my life story, just said, you need to go to AA. Uh, in his professional opinion, Alcoholics Anonymous offered the best um, possibility for me. And I went to a meeting the next night, didn't want to be there. But what I got was a handshake, John. And a guy, uh, John L. said, I'm John, welcome. And I said, well, I'm PJ. And it was my third meeting. I had gone before, but didn't want it. And I had an idea of what AA was like. And he just said, try and uh, listen. You'll hear people speak. And uh, he got me a cup of tea and he left me alone. And that was a great thing. And then the meeting speaks for itself. These people began to share or speak as we hear them. And I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I was still shy on that. But I thought there's something. And John just said to me, uh, try to pick up the first drink, come to another meeting. And it's been coming back. And from that, it's unfolded. So I got sober in Sydney AA. So they had the steps, the traditions. They weren't heavy on God. AA is a secular society. Uh, you'd hear a bit of a mention on it. Uh, a, a lot of it was uh, the best way to get sober is the way that works for you. Uh, well, uh, I like that. You know, that's, that's good. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Give it, give it time. These are guidelines. And they were big on sort of... Uh, just listen for someone that you identify with. And, you know, because we're all quite different in that sense, the way we approach it, like high bottom drunks, low bottom drunks. Uh, I, I couldn't read very well when I got sober. Um, you know, my big achievement at nine months was to read a children's book, 
with pictures in it. <laughs> and I was so proud. But no one said you can't do that, you know. So like reading the literature or studying it was not going to be on for me. So how I accessed people spoke about the program and the steps. You remember, you'd be old enough to remember when cars had cassette radio players and you had your C90 tapes. So uh, some people listen to this and be going, what the hell is he out of that? Anyway. I keep cars uh, for a long time, so I still have one with a cassette player in my... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, still, I still do. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've digitized my old speaker cassettes, you know, and I have a little tape player and I play it in, you know, and it's now an MP3 or whatever. Uh, so, so I would listen to speakers. So I'm from an Irish storytelling culture. So it's really the stories that hooked me into AA. And I'm just astounded by the fact that we're these alcoholics and we have this terrible life, awful. And then we come to AA and we can, we can get well, you know, and we can have a decent life. And why not? You know, we don't have to be second class citizens. And but my problem was I was an alcoholic. I was trying to drink. And I just had to get the booze out of the system, get away from the old environment and start hanging out with people with a bit of sobriety. And then I was able to do something with my life. So it's taken a long time. So I've, I was a renegade Catholic when I came in. I couldn't say the word God in the, they closed the meeting with serenity prayer. But over time, I began to read the big book. I began to do the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer. Start to do that sort of drill until about 18 years sober I thought I don't think I believe this stuff anymore <laughs> and I think when I'm praying I'm talking to myself and that's that's okay when you're drinking but when you're sober <laughs> in years, uh, it's probably not the best <laughs> so uh, I began to share about it and then I discovered that when you say in Sydney meetings that you don't believe in God you get this pushback, you know, and uh, that just, I was amazed. This is a secular country, you know. Anyway, I didn't stop telling people. And about five odd years ago, I was in the U.S. And I went to a meeting in Florida, an AA meeting. And this guy said, his name was so-and-so. He was an alcoholic. He was an atheist. He said, I don't believe in God. And I don't need to believe in God with the principles of AA in my life. And I thought, wow, you know. And uh, two weeks later, I went to a meeting in Berkeley, California for atheists and agnostics. There's 20 odd, 20 odd people there. And I didn't know it existed, you know. And they were all shapes and sizes, long-term, short-term sobriety. None of them believed in God. And then came back to Australia and Googled AA atheists and discovered there was one meeting in Australia, in Melbourne, and that's 900 kilometers away. <laughs> uh, then I thought, well, we have to do something. I met a, met a friend who was an atheist, uh, and we decided to start a meeting. That was the Brookvale meeting on a Monday. Uh, so the last time I spoke to you four years ago, we'd been up and running for about five months. And that's, and that's where I was. Uh, and of course, a whole lot has happened. So that's sort of where we are at this point in time. Yeah. And so how has that meeting um, been going these last uh, four or five years, four years? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we were going really well. And we opened a second meeting the following year on a Saturday. So that the Brookvale meeting was a lunchtime meeting. 
on Monday and a lot of people who worked couldn't get to it. So we had a Saturday morning meeting in a different suburb for that. And they were both getting traction. People were finding us, you know. Uh, we had our, our first international visitor was, was from um, the US. Like we started to get people from overseas who were holidaying in Sydney. And because we were the only meeting or only one of two, you began to get people. Also, people drove a couple of hours outside Sydney. Uh, so we're starting to build. Uh, and, you know, people were getting sober. People were finding us. You know, it's no different. One of the things you said to me before, because uh, I thought with your meeting, you're a bit further down the line, you know, that we would remove this obstacle of the God thing and we'd have this avalanche of sobriety. And I think you said to me that you thought the success rate was no different. Would that be right? It's, I think that might be right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I found the same thing. And I'm thinking, how could this be? Because I, I expected a bump. But I have to say, I found, you know, I found it no different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, and sometimes I wonder, I wonder sometimes too, how you would even measure success. It's successful for the people that are sober that are going to the meeting. hundred percent, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's so, right. So in that sense, but yeah, it's like what I find interesting about an AA meeting is that over time, the group evolves as people come and go. The The group kind of changes personality as new characters come in and out, you know, um, like when our group first started, um, there are a lot of, uh, you know, older people my age who had some experience with AA and it was a negative one for the most part. So they... So they were kind of attracted to our meeting. And in those early days, you heard a lot of um, bashing and rehashing of how bad things were. And then over time, it evolved to this new set of people that have never been to an AA meeting ever until they started coming to a secular meeting. It was their only experience with AA. And that's a whole different dynamic. Which, which I experienced at your meeting with people who'd never seen a big book <laughs> and the, the thing that struck me with that meeting and and this to me is well it's fellowship is what's keeping me sober it's the other other alcoholic is human is we were hanging around outside the meeting and there they are standing around talking and that support uh, so, so to me i have what i call a minimalist sobriety i've removed a lot of the theistic elements but i still retained a, lo a lot of what works you know is the fellowship and going to meetings and applying i guess it like i don't use the word program or step yeah that sounds a bit i, I like that pj <laughs> yeah you know i've actually learned a lesson from uh, this is i i say i learned the lesson this one day but i think it's been kind of an evolution and then i had like an aha moment and it was at your meeting it was at your sunday meeting and what we did, it was an ID meeting, right? And it, it was my second week in a row to be there. And so I'm going to share my story, but, you know, we only share little bits of our story. And I thought, well, you know, I can't share my story every single week. So I'm, I'm going to come up with a little, like, like the first part of it. So I talked about how, okay, um, I struggled with my alcoholism. Um, I, I gave up. I, I, I knew I needed help. My life was a mess. And I made a decision to change. And then I finished the story by saying, that's the first three steps. And I felt really proud of myself, right? Yeah. 
thinking I did a great job. Well, at the end of the meeting, when we were all just kind of chatting, right? And the woman, I, 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 I like her so much and she's new and she hadn't, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she's new and she hasn't, um, and she has a problem with religion. She's been hurt by it. She's been harmed by it. And she said, do we really have to bother with those steps? And then one guy was talking about how, you know, the steps were great for him. But when I, when she said that, I immediately regretted that I had to insert the steps into my story because it was totally unnecessary. It would have been fine just to tell the story about what happened without having to attach a number of a step to it. That's right. Yeah. Yep. It just complicates things because then she has to say, well, so you had to make a decision about God? (laughs) You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that leads on to something else that I see is a problem. And and you you did a podcast with John H on deprogramming not <laughs> yeah. so long ago. Yeah, John, he gets me yeah. in trouble with the, some of the things he wants to talk about. <laughs> I know, but <clears throat> but people think they have to use this language, and it's it's quite frightening. The reality is, you come into AA like what I've done is. Uh, I've had to say, right, you've got a, a clean sheet of paper. That's your sobriety. Don't put anything on it unless you really think it's got to be part of your sobriety. There is a tendency for people to think they have to have something. Like if if, uh, if you're sober without reading this book and applying these steps, and I'm not, there's this sense that, oh, well, you must have more than I do because you're doing more. <laughs> but that's not true. But, but this is this is the way the society is. More is better. If I'm doing it, you're not, I must be better. But like pr- praying for me is a pointless exercise because there's nothing there. It's, it's as simple as that. So why basically, why do what I'm doing? Is, is this of benefit really? Is this necessary? Uh, but that takes time. Uh, and I just wanted to read something. So... When we began these meetings, I thought, all, I don't want to change everything. All I want is an old-style ID meeting, as if you were to. An ID is identification, so it's storytelling. We tell our stories in a general way of what it used to be like, what happened, what it's like now. So a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, I was an alcoholic. I picked up a drink. My life was a disaster. I came to AA. I got me sober, and now I live a sober life. That, that's the format. So I, I'm not anti-AA and I don't want to change everything. And for, for that reason, I refer to a lot of AA literature because I think it has a lot to offer. And this is what I try to remember. So this is very old AA and it's from a story from Farm to City and it's early Akron. And this lady, Ethel, and her husband, Russ, got sober and he had died. He had cancer. And this is the story of horror at this stage. So it's about 1942, I think, very early on. So um, Russ lived a year longer than they expected him to live. And in that year, he was in bed for at least six months. I can't express what AA meant to us during that year. There were two women in the St. Thomas Hospital at that time in the room. Russ was buried on Friday. And on Sunday afternoon, Hilda S. had invited me there to dinner Sunday night. I didn't think I could do it. I knew Doc and Anne were going to be there, and all of them thought it would be good for me, but the first thing I did was to go to St. Thomas and try to talk to those women. I sat down on the side of one of their beds, and I started to weep, and I couldn't stop, 
and I was so startled. And I apologized again and again for it. And that woman told me long after that was the surest proof to her that this program could work. If on Sunday I could be there trying to think of something that would help her with this problem, then we must have something that could work. That to me is AA, is just trying to help other people. Uh, and if, if I don't maintain that focus, what is my sobriety worth if it's not of value to somebody else? So that's what I've tried to um, remember with our meetings. Uh, so you, you, you've been to, so, so going back to, we had two meetings in Sydney, COVID came along and shut us down. So we just started up uh, a Zoom replacement. Uh, there was, you know, we just didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and the same sort of format. And at that stage, we'd had the experience of the meetings and knew we could work and knew people wanted it. Uh, it, it transformed us. And this is the same story for everybody, John, not just me. But instead of having a local, your local suburb or a few more suburbs, you become interstate, you become international, uh, and you get exposed. And everybody has this story now, which, which just put us on the map. But particularly from an Australian point of view, I went to the Melbourne meeting a few years ago, and that's 900 kilometers away. I had to, you know, go down there on holidays. Now you can zoom to Melbourne. And also I got in touch with particularly in Adelaide and Brisbane people and uh, you're, you're more connected. And there's that sense that you're not just a suburb in Sydney and the next meeting is, you know, 900 k's away. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, what's happened now is that I used to host those two meetings, but I now just do one, which is the Monday and it's um, a minimalist meeting. It's still, uh, what it is, is an entry door. I don't talk about steps or about program. Uh, I don't think I have that ability to say, well, this is the way it should be. However, we have links where, you know, there's the, the, the super list online and you can go to meetings all over the world. If you're interested in these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So going back to what I read from that piece of text, that's what I'm about is to try and, and also focus on, in Sydney with trying to build us here because we're still very small and, and COVID, uh, I, I would say a third of the AA meetings in Sydney to a half have not reopened. So it's really knocked AA for six here, you know? Uh, so it's to try and hopefully we'll get another physical meeting up and running. Yeah. Uh, so are you still meeting you just online exclusively right now? That's right. Same here. One, no, we actually yeah. started week meeting in person now. We started meeting in person and it's it's not gone off. Um, it hasn't taken off as quickly as I thought it might. You would think that everybody would want to flock back to the in-person meeting, but um, it wasn't happening. We had um, uh, four people at the first in-person meeting and then um, uh, a couple of weeks after that, um, Kana was the only person to show up. Um, uh, it, maybe it just took a while to get the word out. I don't know what it was, but um, I'm hoping that, uh, and maybe people still don't feel comfortable going to the in-person meetings. I mean, the thing here in the States is that a lot of us are vaccinated now. 
And I think those of us who are vaccinated are feeling more safe, you know, to go out and, and, and attend in-person meetings, uh, but not everybody feels safe. Um, only 30, you know, I say a lot of people, only about 30% of the people have been vaccinated. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think um, you lose momentum mm. when the meetings shut up. That's a big disruption. It is. It is. Uh, at the same time, you get people, it's the same story for you, I'm sure. And they're, they're, they're uh, uh, Zoom babies. They yeah, call yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm, yeah, and and they're accustomed to that meeting, and like we're going to keep our Zoom meetings, um, even simultaneously with our our in person meetings, and because our Zoom meetings are like yours, we have people from all over the world will come to that meeting, you know. But I think that our in person meetings will be fine uh, over time. It'll just take a while for people to um, filter back. But I was expecting a, every, an excitement and a boom. Everybody go back all at once and be excited about it. And it's not been that way. It's been kind of a trickle. No, I think that's. Uh, and, and the one thing with sobriety is it's always long term, it's always slow. Uh, I, I've never experienced anything very sudden. It's been a very gradual change, except that. Of course, it's the changes within me. So I've had to adjust to. Once I figured out I was an atheist, and I heard that guy in the states and went to the meeting. Then when I came back to Sydney, I, I found it hard to listen to how it works. Yeah, I know. I me too. Really hard. Me too. <laughs> I, I listened to that thing for twenty-five years, and all of a sudden I couldn't stand it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Believe yeah. it or not, I used to listen to it, and it would almost be like meditative. You know, I just it was just like comforting because. It was like, I'm there with my friends, they're reading this BS thing, and it was comforting in a way because it was a repetitious thing. But then after a while, when I was like you, and I realized I was an atheist, and I was thinking about things differently, and talking about things differently, I couldn't, I couldn't bear to listen to that, that anymore. It's so strange. But yeah, I feel, I feel the same way. And, and here's the difficult part of that. There's elements of AA like that are just not my cup of tea. But there's so much that is. So do you remain in AA? Do you go, you know, separate organization? Do you do, do you stop going to meetings? Uh, I, I'm somebody that needs the fellowship. I, I get it in AA. And one of the interesting things happened too is uh, I would go to, you know, regular meetings uh, or and just say, you know, make an announcement, oh, we've got some meetings for atheists and agnostics, you know, secular meetings. Uh, people, some people will come up and say to you, you shouldn't be saying that, you know, you have to believe in God. You get those people coming up to you. But people I've known for decades will come up and say, whisper quietly, well, I'm, I'm an atheist too, but I don't want to say anything because I'll upset so and so. Um, so there are also people who don't believe in God, but don't want to say anything. Or else it doesn't bother them how it works doesn't bother them. Or hearing the sets doesn't bother them. Uh, but in my case, it does bother me. <laughs> so when we started the Brookvale meeting, we had the steps up, the traditions up. Uh, we had the responsibility statement. Uh, and we used to read more about alcoholism, but it was taking up too much time. So what's happened is we've, we've begun removing it and one day on the Saturday meeting, we couldn't have it in our usual room and we we're in next door. There was nowhere to hang up the steps and traditions on the banners. 
So we left them down. And after the meeting, we thought, well, I didn't miss them, you know, uh, because, again, we were caught in this idea that you had to do it a certain way, that you had to sort of have some connection and it's appropriate to hang these things up, but you, exactly. you don't have to. You do not. So now, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was, uh, when we started our meeting, I thought the very same thing because all these years I've been going to AA meetings and you had the 12 steps structures. So I bought the big rolls. And I hung, and I would hang them up, hang them up in our meeting, right? And I and I would every day I'd come in there, I'd take them out and hang them up, and I did that until one day a woman was at the meeting, and she found them objectionable and um, couldn't stand looking at them hanging there. Yeah. So we took them down, never put them back up, and nobody misses them. Hmm. Yeah. We didn't. We don't yeah. really talk about the steps anyway um, in our yeah. meeting very much. Yeah. And and the truth of the matter is, unless it's specifically a step meeting, hardly any AA meeting is actually about a step per se. Unless it's specifically a, it's studying a step on that that meeting. Yeah. Most most yeah. of the times, like you say, you know, we're we're sharing our stories. Yeah, that's right. Our experience, so, our personal so experiences. Hmm. Whatever's going on for you at at, at the, the time. time. At the time. Yeah. So, so now, uh, with the meeting, as you know, we just read the preamble. That's because that, to me, has always been that's a in a nutshell. It is, and it's secular. And, and the last line: our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. That's what it's about. And then you tell your story. And in the beginning, I had a fourteen-year drinking story, which was not much fun. But then as time goes on, you get a bit of sobriety and you start to kick a few goals and you have successes. And it's a question of leaving it alone because I, I think too with some of the secular, I mean, I've been to secular meetings all over and I think they can get stuck on the alternative 12 steps, you know? And uh, which, which alternative do you use? Or it could be, and there are even now step meetings that are the so-and-so's book so they're using someone's book. I, I mean, it's okay to look at these things to to consider an alternative or maybe just to get your mind working on it. But I think there's a danger of secular people latching on to, no, no, this guy's book's better than your book. I agree. You know? I agree. <laughs> it, it is problematic. And it's also... The one, the one thing, uh, and I've, I've experienced the steps. I'm okay at the steps and everything. I've, I've changed completely the way I think about them. I think about them as just exp an experience, and that's the way those people describe that experience. I don't have to describe it that way. I don't even have to attach numbers to my experiences. I'm done with all that crap. But there's a tendency of, in a human being, um, and I was this way, to say, just show me what to do. Oh, here's 12 steps to follow these steps, do that. And they're all, and it's plain, you know, and so, so our minds, we think, oh, if I just do these things, I'll be fine. But the problem with it is that sobriety isn't easy and recovery isn't easy. And there's a lot of ups and downs. And when you get into that low spot, I've seen people kick themselves because they think, oh, I'm just not doing this step right. And that's the danger. And and uh, or uh, someone else telling you you're not doing the step right. Even worse. So that's the danger. I'm I'm like you now. I just think that 
you're probably better off just, um, there's a lot of good principles in those steps that just kind of are kind of like human nature anyway. And if we just not drink and support each other in our desire to stay sober, we're probably going to kind of do those things. You don't have to put us make, make steps out of them really. No, that's right. Uh, I also think, and I was given this tip early on too. This guy said, uh, don't go digging up stuff. Don't go looking for something in yourself to work on. Right? Uh, it, it will come up when it true. is true. That's to true up. too, isn't it? Uh, and you realize um, that you need to change, that something has to be addressed. I've gone to about six psychologists in 25 plus years. That's where I deal with the heavy lifting. I I go to someone who's professional. I have a chat to them. If I like what they're about, I'll say, okay. And it usually takes six to eight weeks. Uh, And then I've sorted out. You've just reminded me um, a story. So as I said, I was listening to cassette tapes on speakers. And I had my favorite speakers, you know, and at the time it was Jack Brennan and Father Joel Martin and Father Ralph Full. They were the speakers at the time. And I will be listening to them thinking, you know, okay, this is how you get sober. These are the steps. This is how you work it. And at about three years sober, we moved across Sydney. So I, I was from the Southern Shar right down the bottom and I went across the other side. So the meetings were different people I didn't know. And I'm at this meeting and I heard Marion from Camorn and she was sober a long time. And she said, uh, the, the uh, only way to make amends to your family is by staying sober. And I'm sitting there thinking, ah, oh, no, no, no. There's more to it than that, Marion. You know, <laughs> I'll add uh, the tapes I've been listening to. And I, I almost went up to her after the meeting to sort of straighten her out, you know, which I didn't. I'm so glad I didn't. So she's sober about 30 odd years. Uh, and I didn't know that I didn't know. And I was at our funeral some 10 years later. And it was a big AA affair. And the eulogy was given by one of our well-known AA people. And there was AA funerals. You find out about the people. You find out about their family. And at that funeral, her adult children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren stood up and spoke about this wonderful lady. Uh, and I thought, I think you made amends to your family. Uh, and ever since then, I'll say, that's the best way to make amends to people is by staying sober. If you realize you have to do more, you will. But don't go setting this idea that you must. Like once you start saying you must and you have to, or else. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, my, you know, um, when I did make amends and I was at the time I was doing it the official way through the book and everything, mine were pretty minimalistic, um, because there is that caveat in there, except when to do so would injure them or others. Well, in almost every instance, you know, the amend wouldn't have done, I don't think the amend would have done me any good or the other person because they were all people in my family. And the best thing I could do is not drink and be a member of the family just to be, you know, not, not to be constant trouble, especially with my father who was alive at the time. He, he did not need to hear me go through all the crappy things that I did. 
he loved me and he just wanted me to be happy and sober. And I was, and we had a good relationship during the the years that he was alive. I was uh, sober for 10 years when he died. So I had 10 years of sobriety uh, and a good relationship with him. And I never had to sit down with him and rehash all the, all the stuff that I did. Now, one, one amends I did make that I kind of found was necessary was um, I was fired from a job for my drinking, right? And so I got a new job um, when I was sober, and it was like just right down the street from where I used to work. And I knew I was going to be running into the people <laughs> that, I, that fired me for my drinking, right? And I had so much shame, P- PJ, for I couldn't look them in the eye if I would have seen them in the street. That's how much shame I had. I would have, I would feel like I would need to run away. And so I had to go to that, to the, to that place where I used to work that, that fired me for my drinking. And I went and I thanked them for all the times that they offered me help. And I explained that I didn't know that I had a problem and that I'm okay now. And the response that I got was pretty incredible. The guy was so happy that I was sober and we had a nice little chat. And from then on, I worked there for like 10 years. And we saw each other often. We'd sometimes have lunch you know, right side by side. You know, So I'm so glad I did that. And, um, yeah. I, you know, I don't even know if you would call that an amends or not. But I needed to, I for my own sake, I just needed to be able to look at somebody that knew me from my drinking and be able to not be ashamed. Yeah. But, but isn't that there, the, the, your motive for doing that was for you. It was, totally. And, and I think that's a very important part of it, is that it's... It's totally for you. My, my, yeah. I made amends to my mother. My father was dead. He died four years earlier. Um, and when I was drinking, I wouldn't ring ma'am like for six weeks. And my sister would ring me from Ireland. For God's sake, when you ring your mother, she thinks you're dead. Because I was drinking, right? So... I made amends by ringing her once a week. Uh, I went to visit her. I would go there once a year, uh, just support and tell her what was going on in my life. Just basically a mother-son relationship. And later on, she had to go into a retirement village and financially we needed those five siblings. I, I clubbed in with the money. So it, it wasn't this big list of, oh, I did this wrong. I did, you know, this big, like wearing a hair shirt. Right, right. Uh, I I found she was just thrilled that I was sober because she suspected I would be drinking. I I went through a divorce and all that. And my father, well, I I made amends to him just by trying to be the best son I could be. In, In fact, he was, I was very fortunate with my parents and he was just a, a, a decent man, a loving husband and a caring father. And I aspire to be him. He was a tremendous role model. Uh, and the difference between us was he could have two pints of Guinness on a Saturday night and come home. I couldn't. So I, I went off on this tangent. Uh, and now what's happened in sobriety is, is that I can aspire to be with those qualities that he had, you know, a, a decent man, a loving husband and a caring father. I think that you've reached that. Me, I think you've reached that potential. I think you've reached that. Yeah. You are that. Yeah. 
You are yeah, those things to today. Yeah. 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 It's, well, it's, it's nice to know that, that we have, that we have changed, you know, and to yeah. recognize it sometimes, you know, that, yeah, yeah things are okay. It's, it's like as if there's a potential for us to be people, you know, the real person you can be. And then you pick up a drink or whatever it is, and you go off in, into this, all off, off on a tangent and, and you're not real. And then in AA, you can have the chance of going, well, I'd, I'd like to live a life this way. And I'd like to conduct myself this way. And, and that alcohol just chopping the legs out from under me all the time. It's just chopping you down. And you can, again, it's like in, a, in secular AA, it's just removing these things that are, like they say, we have to get rid of the things which are blocking us. Well, you got to get the booze out of the system, get away from the old lifestyle, and start to make a few changes. Um, so with amends, there was another reading, which is um, from the big book. It's called A Career Officer. And this guy was Irish, and he got sober in about a year after AA had started. Uh, and he said here, uh, since I joined, so his name was uh, Sackville. Since I joined on that April night, AA has done more for me than just stop me from drinking. It has brought me back to life again. It has made me understand that I must be one of my world, that I cannot exist in any happiness as a rebel by myself. It has taught me that I can best keep my sobriety by sharing it out with others, that I must bring that sobriety to others who need it in my own interest. It continues to try to teach me the real charity the charity that gives time and goodwill and service and not just money. It has shown me through the tragic stories of so many other alcoholics, the utter futility of self-pity. It has taught me that success and failure are never final and neither count very much in the final assessment of any man who has done his best. My mother lives on for five years after I joined AA, the last two in complete blindness, not least in my debt to AA is the knowledge that in that time when she wanted me most, I was there and I, I, I wasn't drunk. Uh, I, I love those stories, John, because that, that's what we can be. Yeah. That's what we can do. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot in those stories. And really when you boil it down, that's the strength of AA is the, is that connection that you make from people through their own stories. And that, that's what it was for me in my very first meeting and um, even all those years that I was um, re- studying that book and doing those steps, it was really, it was really the friendships and the people that I knew in the rooms uh, that made the biggest difference in my life. And I, I, and like you, I also, I also sought outside help, which I thought was important. And I did that fairly early on. Um, after maybe two or three years of sobriety, um, I went to um, counseling for the first time. And at that, at that time I didn't have a lot of money and I went to this place that would just charge you on a sliding scale. And I, I was being counseled by this guy who has a master's degree, but it was such a, it was such an amazing experience that, um, I found it so beneficial that, um, it was much easier for me later on when I had the insurance and the means to go to another one. And I, and so I did group therapy and individual therapy, did all kinds of therapies, but found it very, very beneficial, um, and now they have, you know, I'm, I'm actually thinking about doing some more, actually, I said that quietly. Uh, 
but I, <laughs> they, they have they have because you know you can access that you can access now online um, a lot of um, therapy and I'm I'm kind of interested in in that uh, to see what kind of yeah. quality of um, therapy that is but yeah I found that really beneficial as well yeah I I, I most certainly have uh, and I was just thinking so I've spoken about my my past and you know getting sober and we now have a Zoom meeting. And I'm thinking in terms of the future, you know, what's sort of down the track. So I'm very much pro AA, despite its many problems. I want to work within AA. So, you know, do volunteer work beyond rosters. Uh, and I also think that patience is so important. So one of the meetings you came to uh, at Brookvale, there would have been a, a lady who had a baby, I think, maybe the second one, I think she might have been. So she discovered us like I did in Florida because somebody at a meeting said there's a Brookville meeting on and she came along and had been struggling. Uh, in her own words, she said, I didn't think I could, could continue on in AA meetings. Found us uh, and, had, and now had second baby with a guy. So, you know, her life has moved on. So. I found when, when we used to have um, meetings in the room, you've got to be open for a number of years. You've got to just be consistently there that people find you. So I hope that we can get an actual in-room meeting, but I just want to keep the Zoom meeting all, always because it is it gets the interstate people, gets the international people. Uh, it's so super convenient. And it's pretty close to the real thing. It's just that, we we can't offer you a cup of tea and, and coffee. We can't we can't give you food. Um, I thought but, it was a nice meeting. It's like it goes for an hour and a half, and so you start yeah. like, is it the first hour that is it the do you use the entire ninety minutes for the meeting? Then you have the social afterwards, or is the social part of the the meeting? So the the traditional idea meeting is ninety minutes, which with sharing with stories, and everybody so shares their story. It's not like a speaker meeting, right? That's right. So. The closest thing to North America I've come across is a speaker meeting, but you could say that everyone's a speaker. Uh, and we give you between five and 10 minutes uh, to speak because you, you obviously might be saying a little bit more. And say, when I was new in sobriety, I'd be talking about my drinking and it was, I was pretty negative. Uh, and then as you progress on, you might talk about, you know, the little things you achieved and how your life is getting a bit better. And then of course there's, uh, I mean, a story I, I shared recently, uh, and I used to hear this when I was new, people talking about getting a phone call at three in the morning from the police over their children. Well, about two months ago, I got that phone call, John, from about my son, who you met when we went to Kansas. And they found him knocked out uh, at a station in Sydney. And then we got a phone call from the emergency department. Then we got your son. So you got to get out of bed and off you go. Uh, so that's now part of my sobriety. And the punchline in all this, and he, he did, he was okay in the end. The punchline in all this is I didn't have to pick up a drink over it. I didn't even pick up. So I'm now telling this story that I used to hear about, wondering, oh, I wonder what that'd be like. <laughs> uh, so that's what happens as 
because we're just living a life and we're exposed to different experiences, aren't we? So uh, the, the longer you're living, the more will happen to you, probably. And maybe you have to learn to deal with more. And that's sobriety mm-hmm. for me. And you know, when you t- you talked about how um, you like AA, and I do too, the, the, the one thing, the strength of AA is that we all don't have to agree. That yeah. every group can do its own thing, its own way, however it wants to. Yeah. And um, yeah. it's it's kind of a, a outside of our nature to to really think think that that's possible because we're we're used to like having some government that tells us what to do or you know some authority up on top that that comes down and gives us something to do. Not that way at all in AA. You have basically oh. it's an oh. it's a network of these independent groups. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, there are people that will be happy for us to get kicked out. Actually, I heard... A, a and they can't even to kick us out because there's no way to do it. <laughs> well, I heard an interesting story because I've got a friend of mine who lives in Melbourne and, and he, he goes to a, a lunchtime meeting there. So the Brookvale meeting, which was physically in Sydney and it's shut down, right? It's now on Zoom. It hasn't shut down. It's just on Zoom. But he heard a guy <laughs> from Sydney... At his meeting in Melbourne, talk about, oh, there was a meeting opened up to Brookvale atheist, but I knew it would never work and it's shut down. <laughs> like, haha. So my friend went up to him afterwards and says, uh, it's not shut down. <laughs> it's on Zoom <laughs> and it's going really well. But imagine that, you know, if, if I went to Kansas and spoke to you about a meeting that shut down in Sydney, I'm like, well, why would I do that? Right. Like, why would I? <laughs> Makes sense. As if you're interested. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I've also found too, uh, it has to be it has to be careful to not think everyone in AA or everyone who believes in God is anti me or anti secular meetings. Uh, some are, that is for sure. There are some that are just not pushed either way. You get other people like I was at our service office last week. And a lady I hadn't seen in a while and we're chatting. And I said, you know, let them know we're on Zoom because, um, you know, we need we need to appeal to people who don't believe in God. And she said, well, we had a new guy last week and he's having big, big trouble with the God stuff. So you've, you've got to sort of work with people who will work with you. Uh, and, and more and more people will be like me in AA who once upon a time did the prayers, did the steps. And then one day go, now, nah, it's it's not for me. And the next generation, our two sons, twenty two and nineteen, they don't believe in God. When they were going through high school, in their cohort, there might be one Christian who went to Sunday school. Uh, that that generation, they they're not interested. And and maybe that's why you were saying with the numbers not coming back to the physical meetings, it could be that generation too, because on a cold winter's night. You want to tell someone who's 19, 20, oh, you got to get in your car, drive out, <laughs> go to a little, you know, windy hall somewhere and freeze. Well, interestingly or, enough, I was talking to one of those, um, I guess they're in the millennial generation, I don't know, younger person in her late 20s, early 30s. You've met her. And I asked her, I said, you know, this would have been, this pandemic would have been really difficult for me when I was your age. Because that was the time in my life when I was socializing and going out with friends and doing things. And she says, yeah, but, you know, we stayed in touch texting and 
this and that. So they they had they had a way of staying in touch, and they did. They stayed in touch all this time, um, using their phones and and so forth as as they would do normally anyway, I guess. Um, but she is the one who was really anxious to get the in person meetings going again, and um, I I need to start going to those meetings too, just to support them. Um, and I'm, and I, I love the thing for me, PJ, about the meetings that, that helps me the most is watching people like her Yeah, yeah. to see how yeah. it's changed her and what a difference has made in her life. And then to see her do more to help others. It's just incredible to me to see that that's, that's the magic of the, the whole thing for me. And if I don't, and, and to not have that in my life, is just, you know, I'm not going to die because of it, but it's just my life isn't as rich as it would be. Ah, yeah, well, hundred percent. And you, you just uh, triggered something in me. I think the physical meetings are better because it's one thing, say, to click on a link and attend the Zoom meeting, and you can have your all your your video off, and you can have a false name, right? But you walk across the threshold of a doorway into a room with other people. And I certainly found that incredibly challenging. Oh, me too. Uh, and it's, it's really like, it's an admission. It is. <laughs> it You're, really is. And so I think we, we, that's what we don't have. That's what the online meetings don't have because it's the same. You're clicking on, it's just another meeting uh, in a sense. So it doesn't have that pressure on you. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, other people might say, oh, no, it doesn't make, make any difference, you know. It certainly did for me. It certainly did for me. Yeah. Well, PJ, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think that I think this was really interesting. It was good to catch up with you again. Um, yeah. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about that that, that you would like to? Well, there's just one last reading, uh, and this is this is um, from an AA book written by a guy called Arch McKinnon. He was one of our non-alcoholic co-founders. And uh, he's talking about the early days where they moved around. They're getting kicked out of places. And then they got to settle in this place called Biani House. So it says, soon after we settled in, in at Biani House, and now, sorry, I just wrong one there, yeah. Uh, okay, amongst my pleasant memories of Biani House is that of the two old ladies. The top floor of the building was used uh, as apartments, and living there were two old ladies neglected and forgotten, eking out their last days in drabness and soul-destroying dullness, sufferers from a disease which is surely the most dreadful condition that one can suffer from. It attacks mostly the old, but even sometimes the young. It is called loneliness. Almost overnight it all changed as the building started to fill up with men, young and old from every social level, who wanted to talk and would talk to anyone willing to listen. Many brought attractive wives and girlfriends who also wanted to talk. Before they realized what was happening, the two old ladies were involved in the lives of dozens of people. They helped to prepare supper and took part in other activities. Most important of all, they gave a touch of home to many lonely men and they too began to live again. They cried over the ones who fell by the wayside and rejoiced for those who succeeded. There was always something dropping in to see them, for Vianney House really became a home and a club for AA, and members with time on their hands climbed the steep Bavo Street Hill to see the old ladies. 
AA enriched their lives and brought happiness to two dear women, such happiness indeed as they had not known for many years. But AA owes to them the same intangible debt it owes to so many other non-alcoholics who, in their various ways, made their contribution to its eventual success. Well, isn't that nice? I like that. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. What, What book is that from? Uh, it's called uh, Castle of Shadows. Okay. Yeah, it's out of print, unfortunately. Okay. It's a history of AA written by Arch McKinnon. Interesting. Uh, and there's lots of stories in it of AA's early days wow. and the ups and downs it had here. Cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, it's been really good talking yeah, to you, John. it has been. It's been uh, very it's nice. Bang, gone. And, and also now, uh, uh, four years ago, a little bit more to talk about, mm-hmm. a little bit more experience. Figured out Missouri versus Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, I look forward to the day when the world opens up again uh, in real life. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.